Hey, welcome to Proudly Resents. Today's show is a little bit different. Instead of doing one long interview about one movie with one guest, we have three quick interviews. We'll talk about the movie. We're going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. How is that in a bad movie podcast? That's what I'm asking. Sherilyn Connolly runs Bad Movie Night in San Francisco, and for the third year in a row, they're going to show It's a Wonderful Life and give it the bad movie treatment. They're going to heckle it. They're going to yell at it, make fun of it. Uh, she talks about how they got death threats. People have quit. People don't talk to her anymore because she's done this. People are furious. She also has a lot of crazy theories about the movie. Definitely worth listening, at least for that, because uh, they're nuts. But it's in the Dark Room Theater in San Francisco. You can go protest it if you want. Then we hear from theater owner Greg Lemley from the Lemley Family Theaters. This family has been around since day one of movie distribution, but even bigger than anything they've ever done. Greg Lemley was the one who decided to give the room a midnight viewing and launch this movie, the super, super, super stardom, <laughs> boy. And we'll talk about the history of film and, and some of the crazier things he did, midnight movies he's had on, like a 3D gay porn. Can I top that? No. All right, but first we're going to talk to Chris Gore. Chris Gore hosts Pod Crash, a really cool, uh, or that Chris Gore that you might know him better as. He has a great podcast called Pod Crash, and next week we're going to have him on and we're going to talk about Logan's Run, which is a crazy movie. Definitely check it out so you can join in the conversation for next week. But as Chris does, he goes on tangents. So I cut out one of the tangents from next week and I put it in this week just because it's really funny. He's on G4 on a show called Tech of the Show, and he talks about how he's still a freaking pain in the ass even on that show and tries to get away with stuff. So check out Chris Gore. You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reason. I, I can't even hear you. Hi, this is Tony Wazell. Uh, proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam Biggest Men Show. To all you Proudly Resents listeners out there, just remember, you can't touch on hospitality. How about you know, there's certain things like I can talk about, like on G4 TV on Attack of the Show. I know that I can talk about certain things of a sexual nature, but I can't talk about like penetration. So, like at one time, uh, Kevin Pereira and I were doing, we were doing the little DV Tuesday segment. I wanted to say of Kevin, I want to say, you know, Kevin, you and I are like a gay married couple without the anal. <laughs> so we're, that's exactly what we're like. Um, you know, we 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 we're, we definitely get along so well. They, I could not really say that. If there's anything that's kind of like touchy, I'm like, mm, can I say this on TV? Can I say that I made her face into a glazed donut? I'm not saying I came in her face. I'm saying, um, and you would not believe the stuff that you can get away with. You I can love get away it. with that? My ch- oh, yes. My challenge is always to like what I can get away with, what I can secretly say, what I can uh, use ASL to, to say for the deaf viewers out there. Um, yes, the I can. Listeners I know I can mispronounce swear words. I can say things like shithid. That's so good. I never even thought of that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do like pushing the limits and seeing what I get away with. But anything that implies drug use or sex in a that 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 implies penetration, you can't say. Oh, really? So now, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's just sort of like you can say oral love. Oh, I love, I love our standards and practices guy Keith at uh, Attack of the Show. He never says no to anything. I'll always ask him like, can I say this? And he goes, hmm. Let me think. He's actually trying to help me get away with saying it. So he's not trying to restrict me. I actually think it makes it more creative. It makes it more creative. I think, you know, um, I mean, anyone, you know, any sort of like writer, 
performer or whatever. You're always going to have some kind of restrictions. Sometimes I think the more restrictions, um, the better off you are because because the challenge is then to beat them. The challenge is, I mean, I think David Lynch um, post Twin Peaks really hasn't when he's been unrestrained in his movies have been less interesting than the TV show Twin Peaks where he had restrictions but they sort of let him go off the rails and I, and I think that the, the, what he did with Twin Peaks was, was more interesting than, than most of the films he's made post, yeah yeah because because he had well, like so crash. many restrictions so many restrictions um, that that he got around them yeah I mean and, and, and it was and it was it was great because you knew there were always two layers working with that TV show and the standards and practice people on TV, you don't realize it, but they're actually working for you. Yeah, yeah, they're actually. Yeah, I don't look time. on them as the enemy. I look on them as That's like the wrong thing to do. Help me get away with this. Yeah, and they'll say, well, you know, if you can't say that, you can say this. Or uh, on the last show I worked on, it was cable, so we were allowed to say shit three times, but not scripted. The comedian couldn't say shit. The monologue and the host couldn't say shit. But if you're talking and you accidentally say shit, and it's not more than three times, then they'll leave Whoa. it alone. Whoa. Because it was the first time they ever dealt with something like that. I think it's douchebag is the word that can only be said once on our show. You can oh, say really? douchebag. So well, as soon as on your show, douchebag, you would say it all day long. That's a show where you can say douchebag a but lot. But then it's weird because then sort of like the, the rules will change. You go like, I think we can get away with two douchebags. So now you can say it twice in a show. So you so open up like, the floodgates. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like, like the Pope saying no douchebags, no gay marriage, no sex before with, marriage. With any of that, it's sort of like there'll always be like there's the thing that sort of pierces. And then after that, it's like, well, here's the limit. And then it's just. But now, I mean, there just there are no limits. I think it's I think it's just it's like it's just it's continuing to to escalate, and I think the internet has just opened it up completely. Yeah, so what people want to hear. I mean, G four, you can legally you can say whatever you want. There's no FCC um, really. Technically, yeah, but there are standards of practice. More of that yeah, has to do with advertising. And, yeah, and exactly. You want advertising. So, you want so that, that's the thing that people don't understand. It's like, look, it's not censorship. No. The only body, this is, I, I can't, getting in any argument on the internet is moronic and stupid, especially if you, especially if you enjoy adhering to facts like I do. But, um, you know, the only, the, the only entity that can censor anything is the, is the government. When a government is telling you you can't do something, that's censorship. When a privately held corporation, a company, or even an individual decides not to do something or puts a restriction, that's not censorship. You know, no, that's because not censorship. It, it's their house. It's their equipment. Exactly. It's their cameras. It's their airwaves. Exactly. Yeah. So they got to make I money. Just, I just always think about ways to get around it. I just think about <laughs> ways to get around it and uh, try to be entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. This is Jake from the Nothing But Show, nothingbutshow.com. I resent that. Yeah. You're listening to Proudly Resents. I resent that. <laughs> Proudlyresents.com. I resent that. Everybody's tweeting, faving and deleting. Follow Friday, some of you know. And play Dream Tweet, the game show to go. Ah, it's the game show to go. Dream Tweet, everybody. It's the celebrity-based Twitter-themed game show that's coming your way where two Twitter titans go head-to-head in a battle of wits and wisdom. Tune in, subscribe on iTunes, and there'll be a new game every single week. And remember, if things get a little bit sassy, just try and keep in mind that I'm just being a bitch. That's my catchphrase, and I'll be using it, and we'll be having laughs, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's Dream Tweet, the game show to go. Dream Tweet.
This is Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. I am the tonsilless Adam Spiegelman. Thank you all for your cards and letters. Yes, I am an old man who got his tonsils taken out. I know, you got them out when you were eight. Um, Sherilyn Connolly is our guest. She runs the Bad Movie Night in San Francisco at a place called The Dark Room. Uh, tonsils or no tonsils, Sherilyn? You know, I'm actually kind of horrified to hear you say you just got your tonsils out because I, I still have my tonsils, and I'm pushing 40. I thought once you hit 20, you're like, yeah, you were fine. You were in the clear, but apparently not. I may still have tonsillitis in my future. You might, That's uh, kind of scary. Luckily, I'm only 19 years old. And, uh, go oh, that helps. Okay. <laughs> but you do. So Bad Movie Night is great. It's every Sunday night at Dark Room in San Francisco, and you guys have really funny people yelled. I have to say my brother's one of them, Mike Spiegelman. Yes, he's one, of, he's one of our favorites. So you guys yelled the screen, and next Sunday, what movie are you guys doing? Uh, this next Sunday, uh, which is going to be December the 10th, uh, that's not true either, December 11th, we are going to be doing, it's, a, it's, a, it's an obscure film. Even you as a film buff might not have heard of it. It's like old, it's like 100 years old, it's in black and white. Everybody who's starting it, they're all dead now. It's a little thing called It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. And it's by the director of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, if that helps you to, you know, figure out what movie we're talking about. I mean, we must have got something confused, because your show is Bad Movie Night, where you guys make fun of bad films, and you said that you guys are doing It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, that is correct. The film we are going to be riffing on, the film we are going to be heckling, the film we are going to be mean to next Sunday is, in fact, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. And you are correct that the name of the show that we are doing this, uh, doing this at is Bad Movie Night. At Bad Movie Night, we are going to be showing and making fun of It's a Wonderful Life. All, right. All of those statements are true. If I can just echo what everyone's thinking right now, uh, boo, how dare you, boo, how dare you, and if you look outside your window, there's a bunch of people with torches, I'm one of them, trying to run you out of town. How dare you say that this movie could be in bad movie night? It is horrible of us, isn't it? You, we have actually, we had a host um, early on who was like a regular guy, he came in, he riffed with us, and then the first time we did bad movie night, he was like, the first time we did it, The Wonderful Life, rather, he was like, no, it's not okay. You cannot make fun of this movie. You cannot call it bad. I'm never coming back. And he has, in fact, never come back. Even some of the people who work at the darkroom are like, oh, do we have to do it? I love that movie. As though loving a film is somehow makes it, should make it uh, you know, immune from being made fun of, or even worse, being called bad. Yeah, As I'm... though calling a film bad is, is some kind of like, you know, grievous insults that it will never get over. Like, we're going to damage it's a wonderful life, you know, self-esteem. What you're putting it up there was, like, Uli Bowl and other bad films. What about it would qualify this for bad films, as a, in, to put it on the bad film night? Probably the first thing, the main thing that makes it great for bad movie night, and this is actually goes across the board for any movie that we do, it's that it has to be easy to make fun of. Has to be easy to make fun of. There has to be elements in there that we can latch on to and riff on and make jokes about. And the other thing is it has to be inherently entertaining to begin with. Because we've, trust me, we've tried doing truly bad movies and we can't make it through them. They're just too difficult to watch even when you have a microphone in your hand. So quite often our bad movies are... Well, some, some, what some people consider to be good movies, 
but are also movies that we can make fun of. There's lots of details around the edges that we can riff on, or say, for example, it has a lead actor who has a particular, uh, who, has a, who has a very distinctive voice, a very distinctive dialect, like Jimmy Stewart. Like in the beginning of the movie, when we're learning about his life, you know, it is a pretty hokey film. Are there things in the, the top of the film that you can talk about? Well, exactly. There is the, the hokiness is there, and it's a kind of cloying, oppressive nostalgia, like a pan to a small town, an idealized American small town bliss that never, the Norman Rockwell thing, that never really existed outside of the movies in the first place. And I acknowledge that movies are inherently realistic, that movies, unless it's like, you know, Lars von Trier, the Ogma 95 thing, movies are going to present an idealized version of life. I get that. I accept that. That's cool. But the uh, world shown in It's a Wonderful Life, though excellently done. Frank Kapler is an awesome director, and he achieves what he sets out to do in this picture. And that right there makes it a good movie, the fact that, you know, it, it achieves what the director wanted to achieve. But as I say, it is so hokey and so white bread and so idealized, idealized for the time period that it was made. And this really shows in stark contrast to the, uh, you know, the nightmare Pottersville sequence at the end of the film in which, oh my God, suddenly the people that were previously, you know, having like nice prim lives where they were like, you know, dancing in their high school gym, suddenly, they are listening, they're drinking alcohol, and they're listening to rhythmic music, which is being created by dark-skinned people, dark-skinned people you don't see in the town beforehand. So when they, they show they the, the bad version of, of life and how badly it can go, and then you got swarthy people. They're not, they're not black in this. They're just swarthy. I believe there are actually some people who, uh, yeah, yeah, some people who would qualify as black in it. I, I believe at the time... On all likelihood, wait, am I, I just wait, wait. Am I just wrong that there were black people? Or are you saying at the time they would qualify as black, and the definition of black has changed? Where I was going with that was yeah. that in all likelihood, in the script, uh-huh. the word Negro was probably used. <laughs> all right, so I, I, yeah, I'd given, rather be wrong that there were black people in there than than to say um, we've changed our definition of what black people are since the <laughs> since the movie came out. Well, what about the stuff about meeting his... Uh, I mean, what are the stuff you yell out during like that scene, the, the great dance scene? Is there anything you can bash on that? Uh, do you mean oh, the dance scene when they're... Uh, when the, the school thing dance opens up and, and then all... the pool opens and everyone's the buffalo gal and everyone's having a great time? Uh, usually we end up yelling very, very dark things about, uh, you know, you have nothing to live for, don't bother swimming, you know, just go ahead and drown, it's all downhill from here anyway. We, as I said, we get, we get kind of dark at bad movie night. Uh, what about uh, Clarence and the Angel? You guys just ripped that apart. <laughs> oh, Clarence. Clarence is so dear to all of our hearts, isn't he? There's just this kind of, like, love in Clarence's eyes as he looks at uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, which, I, you know, I'm not going to call it homoerotic because that would be reading way, way too much into it. There's just something about, like, the pudgy, doughy angel who, I'm not, not going to say he's lusting after Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> that would be, you know, but that would be a modern interpretation. You wouldn't want to do that. that so that. you're saying that he's kind of, he likes twinks? Is he kind of, a, he has a fetish, maybe uh, Jimmy Stewart's kind of like a bear, likes a good bear? 
There might be a little bit of that. Yeah, Clarence, you know, since he obviously knows what, you know, being an angel and being on this and there or what have you, he knows what Jimmy Stewart looked like, you know, as a kid in the film and as a teenager for that matter. And, yeah, Clarence probably, he kind of has the look of a twink chaser. So he's seeing, you know, he's getting in a little bit past the twink's prime, but still, close enough for him. Yeah, yeah. He, well, a lot of the, those guys who chase twinks are past their prime. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Both him and the twink are past their prime in this case, but it's okay. Well, also he's wearing a white suit, which a lot—I just imagine a lot of six-year-old guys chasing. You know, they usually end up in a linen suit at some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, with the buttons down the front and nothing underneath, they catch up with the kids. I just want to show you something, Flash. Well, I just love too the. The open shirt, and there's no chest hair because presumably they're so old that the chest hair fell out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, hey, look at my bald old man chest. Or maybe that's part of the film's theology. Maybe there's something about angels being hairless. They're hair, you know, they start out hairless, and then you know when the bell rings, then they get their wings. Maybe they are hairless until they get their wings. See, this is a much deeper film than people realize at first. I, you know, I'm, I am more than willing to admit that. It's a Wonderful Life might be playing a deeper game than any of us realize. Oh, and what do you think that game is? I can. I think there's. A, I think there's a theology going on there about you know what what angels have to do to. I mean, let's face it. When they say angels don't get his wings, they're really talking about the penis. It's all phallic here. <laughs> so perhaps what? this is some kind of perhaps this is some kind of metaphor for the emasculation of the American male having returned from the war which, of course, George Bailey did not go to and, and all that stuff. But so returning from the war, find that the women are liberated in a way that they weren't before because they actually had to, like, run things while the men were gone, while the, run things while the men were gone and work in the factories. And men had some difficulty finding their place in society again and rewriting things so that they're back to being in charge. And, yeah, it's a wonderful life with the angels and their wings and how they get them all completely a metaphor to the emasculation of the post-war American male. There, there's my next, next thesis paper. Awesome. Finally, someone said it. Someone spoke it the way it is. Exactly. That's what we do at Bad Movie Night. We speak it the way it is, and often the way it isn't, but sometimes the way it is. <laughs> I think there's a lot of isn't in, in Bad Movie Night. Uh, what about Zuzu Petals? Have you read a lot into that? Is there something we don't know that's really going on with Zuzu Petals? Oh, Zuzu Petals, Zuzu Petals, I think, has to have something to do with, uh, you know, if the wings on the angel are the male emasculation, which is the one big male fear, Zuzu's Petals, I would think, would have to represent the fear of female sexuality. Again, bear in mind that, for example, there are no, uh, except for the, the one town tramp, there's really no overt sexuality seen until the Pottersville sequence. And then all of a sudden, there you have it up in neon light. Girls, girls, girls. And again, this is shown as the nightmare vision of the town. So these petals, I think, uh, you know, don't quote me on this. I could be wrong, but I'll bet that if you go back to the original script, it actually said Zuzu's hymen. But then they had to change it because, you know. That one said in all. the original script? Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Don't, 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 don't hold me to that. But I'm I holding, I'm holding you to that. Someone. Oh, you know, go, the, go ahead. Hold it to me. See if I care. I'm mute. I'm laughing and coughing so hard I almost choked. I don't have tonsils anymore, so I almost just went under. Let's just talk about the response uh, 
to this that people besides the one guy quit the entire show and the theater company over this yeah and he made a, a bit of a joke and again i'm sure it was a joke about uh how he would be in, how he uh has considered burning us down <laughs> because we were making fun of his favorite movie i'm sure he didn't really mean that but yeah without someone always complains the first year that we did it actually someone wrote on our flyer outside it's not a bad movie you sob so, you know, we inspired Hateful Graffiti because we were making fun of the movie. From the you, Hateful Graffiti, from uh, because you hate, because you make fun of such a, the sweetest, nicest movie in the world. People are Exactly. Mad. The they sweetest, want. nicest, most flawless, most, uh, the film you apparently are just not allowed to make fun of. And well, we do it anyway. <laughs> Go figure. This Sunday night, people can come down to the dark room and if they protest, are you, you recommend they first pay, buy a ticket and come in. Exactly. We totally welcome protesters. Absolutely. Come on down and defend the movie. I think that is a great idea. I think everybody who loves the film should come down and do it. Just pay your $5, sit down, and remember, no refunds. You don't get your $5 back. But as long as you do those, do those first, first few steps, pay the money, sit down, acknowledge you're not getting your money back, by all means, protest. I invite it. I think that would be awesome. No, it's $5 to watch and heckle the movie. Seven dollars to come in and protest. Is that correct? <laughs> you know, just just for this week, just for this week, because normally the protest price is seven dollars. <laughs> right. Just for this week, as a Christmas, just as I have Christmas spirit, I can't deny it. In the spirit of Christmas and in the spirit of it's a wonderful life, the protest price and the regular ticket price will both be five dollars. Great. And what are the uh, the websites for for the show and then and your Twitter website? The website for the dark room and for bad movie night is darkroomsf. Dot com, darkroomsf.com, and uh, my Twitter feed, if you'd like to know, is uh, twitter.com, of course, slash Sherilyn, that's S-H-E-R-I-L-Y-N. Thank you very much, Sherilyn, and uh, check out the show. It's, it's always fun, but next week it's going to be very controversial, so I'm looking forward to see what happens, what kind of mayhem you guys do. Also, there's a note of bad movie nights here in Los Angeles, horrible movie night, December 17th. Oh is Elves, also the Christmas spirit, but um, a movie that's actually, people would agree is bad. People, even people in the movie would agree is bad. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. We're going to do an interview next with the guy who started the Lemley Theaters in Los Angeles from the Lemley family, literally the people who started, the first people ever to start distributing films, and the first guy who put the room in a midnight screening. So thanks, Sherilyn. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Okay. Are you a podcaster who feels alone, isolated, rudderless? Join the Independent Podcast Alliance. Find hundreds of people just like you who want to help, talk shop, and promote each other's podcasts. The Independent Podcast Alliance. Find us at proudlyresents.com slash IPA. Don't be dumb. Check out the Independent Podcast Alliance on Facebook and our Twitter is our IPA at O-U-R-I-P-A. Yes, you are. A message from the Independent Podcast Alliance. A lot of important indie films like Swingers, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, Brothers McMullen, Heavenly Creatures, and the biggest, the most important of all, The Room, directed by Tahami Wiseau. 
started at the world-famous art house theater Sunset 5 in West Hollywood. Soon, like all your friends with kids, they're moving to the valley. It's going to North Hollywood. I talked to the owner of the theater about what it's like going to the movies. He's got a lot of great opinions on it. And how he took chances on these midnight screenings for movies like The Room, Showing Deep Throat, and a 3D gay porn that he tried out. And we also talk about the biggest blockbuster disaster he's had. What's happening in the West Hollywood location where The Room started, that is going to be Sundance Channel Cinemas. They're taking over, I don't know, it's like a corporate version of an independent movie thing. So we'll see what that is. But anyway, what is really interesting is Greg's family. He comes, the Lemleys were there at the birth of the movies. So when we open up the interview, Greg talks about his family's role in the movie business. Uh, well, there's a long history of the Lemley family in the film. So what is the family history? Well, yeah, I mean, my, my grandfather and his brother started the circuit, or the chain, uh, the business here in 1938 in Los Angeles. They did get their start in the industry working for their uncle, uh, Carl Lemley, who was the founder of Universal Studios. Carl's history, uh, you know, goes back, I mean, you know, in some respects was the, the first independent in the sense that he led the, the legal battle, break the Edison Trust's control over the movie-making process in this country. Edison felt that he had invented movie-making as a process and that he had a patent on it and it was an enforceable patent and if you wanted to make a movie you had to you know pay you know money to the Edison Trust ultimately. Carl Lemley got his start as an exhibitor and then like a lot of exhibitors he wanted to start making his own movies so that he wouldn't have to pay as much for the product and then he resented having to pay money to Edison for doing nothing and with a European background he said hey I know about these guys Lumiere brothers they independently came up with this process in, in Europe so Patent's not enforceable. And he pushed that case all the way through the Supreme Court, prevailed. That led ultimately to a, I mean, not that it wasn't happening anyway, but it certainly helped blossom the industry. You know, it would have, it would have been under the control of the monopoly control of, of the Edison Trust. Came, I, I started in the, with the company a few years after college. I've been continuously working since 91. And, I mean, in fact, the sunset was the... Uh, was the first theater we opened after I uh, started working here. Right, so we're actually talking because uh, your theater, The Sunset Five, has shown a lot of great films, and now you're closing up to 20 years. What were some of your big successes that you found for your theater? God, almost from the get-go. I mean, Heavenly Creatures uh, premiered at The Sunset Five. Uh, we went on to show uh, Brothers McMullen uh, was at The Sunset Five. Uh, Usual Suspects was at The Sunset Five. Swingers, Windblade, Shakespeare in Love, right up through the end when it was Royal Tenenbaums and Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Gosford Park, Monsters Ball. Yeah, I mean, and those are just some of the Oscar type pictures. On the other side, what were some of the bigger flops that you put in there? <laughs> the flops. <laughs> um, you know, I always regret that we uh, were not able to do more business with a film like Citizen Ruth, for instance. You know, Alexander Payne's first film. He's since gone on to went on to make Election and Sideways and, and a number of other terrific movies. Obviously, so fortunate. But even back in the day, you know, not everything worked. <laughs> you showed the Deep Throat documentary, and then you showed it at midnight, a midnight screening of the of Deep Throat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of response did you get from that? 
Um, uh, the Midnight Suns actually didn't do that well, but um, there was a period of time, you know, um, certainly right around when Boogie Nights came out, there was a little focus on porno chic and whatnot, so we were showing, I mean, we started off showing uh, actually a 3D gay porn film called, um, oh God, what was that called? <laughs> uh, I'm not remembering the title right now, but we were somewhat shocked at the uh, at the level of business, so we... Um, uh, we started digging some more things out of the vault. At least it's just kind of all an experience, and we had a lot of fun. Before we played the Deep Throat film, we played an excellent documentary called Shooting Porn, which was about actors and filmmakers in the gay porn industry, and, 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 and another couple, a couple other films. So we certainly pushed some boundaries. Right. Uh, we made sure that when we negotiated the lease, that there were no limitations on what we could play. Is that have you, know, you found in other theaters that when you lease a theater, you you can't play certain things? It's quite common to see that, whether in you know in a lease from a landlord or in restrictions from the community. Just it wasn't just gay porn and midnight. We were showing Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted Festival of Animation, you know, a couple times a year to sell out crowds. And we would do revivals of uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, sell the theater out. I think uh, Vince from Sham Wow. Uh, you know, infomercials uh, did a film that we ended up playing as a midnight show for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, let's talk about that. The, so, the Room actually started in your theater. Yes, The Room actually started. The Room, it, it didn't start at the sunset. It started at the Fairfax, where it played a, a regular engagement during normal hours of operation with 21 shows a week kind of thing. And it was a huge flop, and yet started getting a little buzz and, uh, and, and turned into a huge hit at the sunset of the midnight show. Uh, how did you first hear about the film, and what interests you? The filmmaker brought the film to us, and we've always tried to... Look, philosophically, we, we, we see the screens as an asset that is available to the community. And the community includes not just people who want to buy tickets, but people who want their film to be seen. So we are always open to finding ways to allow filmmakers to show their films. And some filmmakers turn out to be really good filmmakers and can't sell their movie to an audience. Others turn out to be maybe not so good filmmakers, <laughs> but they know how to, but they can sell a picture. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Tommy Wiseau figured out how to, life gave him lemons, and he turned it into lemonade. Well, did he come to you and say, this is the world's greatest movie, this is the world's biggest flop? Well, how did he present the film to you? Uh, it was the film. Okay, this is the terms under which we'll play the film. He said, fine, and, and we showed it, and then he said, I think there's something here. These are the terms under, you know, and we said, okay, fine. These are the terms under which we'll show it as a midnight show. And it just grew into something that we never would have seen, but Tommy had the confidence that it would happen. Tommy Wiseau, the creator of The Room, took out this huge billboard on the Sunset and Highland promoting the film at your theater once a month at midnight. Were you yeah. aware of this when he did it? I remember when it opened that there were billboards. I can't remember. I thought it was on La Cienega or something. I, you know, but for the midnight shows, no, I, I was not aware that there, there's been billboard advertising for the midnight shows. What do you think helped it make become a uh, huge success? It's word of mouth. Ultimately, it's patience, patience, and word of mouth. My recollection is, is it started in three theaters oh. playing, you know, for two weeks each in each location. And at that point, we kind of we stopped playing it, which is par for the course. A lot of films don't get extended runs. And Tommy came back and said, you know, there's a little bit of buzz going on about the picture. Can we play it as a midnight show? And we said, sure, let's work that out. And it's grown from there. Do you believe um, that there was buzz or no? Yeah, you can't <laughs> deny it. No, at the time. I mean... 
You're losing all um, his money on the movie, and he says, oh, there's buzz on it. Keep going. The, re- the reality is, is when we showed it, people showed up to buy tickets. You know, it was it, it, he didn't sell out five auditoriums at the sunset the first time we did it, but, you know, people bought tickets. And the and next time we did it, people bought more tickets and more and more. So, yeah, there's, you know, it, it, these, these kinds of things can happen, and I hope they'll continue to happen. I don't know whether Sundance will want to play the room at midnight. <laughs> I can't make that part of my exit deal. <laughs> But we're, we're working on coming up with uh, a location for Tommy so that people can get their fix at the end of December. Oh, that's great. What was your reaction when you saw the movie? I don't know. I was, you know, we're looking at it on DVD, and, and oh, you know, you, you it was awful. <laughs> Look, that's why we believe in the theatrical experience, even as people talk about video on demand, day and date, all these kinds of things. You can't recreate the experience of watching the room with an audience Watching it at home to a lesser, and to a certain extent, I would make that statement personally about any film. It's a different experience watching something in a movie theater than it is watching it at home. And in some cases it's better, in some cases it's worse, but it's, it's always different. It's not about how big your screen is or what kind of sound system you have or any of that kind of stuff. You're just, you're out of your comfort zone and you're sharing something with whether it's the auditorium or however many people are in the auditorium, and you have to experience it. I got your number from Glenn, who made a movie called The Worst Movie Ever, and you guys showed <laughs> it in your theater. And to just remind <laughs> you, how much did you make in the first weekend midnight showings of uh, Glenn's he, movie? Actually, only one person bought a ticket for two shows. <laughs> and we thought that was, uh, you have to, we're, we're still trying to figure out who that person is. Is that the worst <laughs> showing you've ever had? That was probably, yes, that was, that was probably the worst show we've ever had. I think he deliberately uh, stood outside and, and had the one ticket himself, maybe, and then told everyone else not to buy tickets so he could not. There was a clamoring of people <laughs> wanting to buy a movie ticket for his film. Well, how did you find out about a movie like that? He sent me an email, and I don't have a lot of barriers. <laughs> it wasn't a terrible I answer, film. I, I answered my own phone, and I returned my own email. So when he expressed interest, and like I said, it's about creating an opportunity for filmmakers to have their film seen. And someone may say, oh, you know, why, why are you only offering me midnight shows? My film deserves to play a full week, or it deserves this or that or the other. It's like, look, this is what I got. Take it or leave it. And do the best that you can with it. Uh, I, I would say Glenn did not do the best, you know, at least financially didn't do the best that he could with it. But you know what? When... When that became part of the story, so to speak, I, I figured he at least deserved another chance. <laughs> Did you run it again? And we ran it again, and now I'm out of tickets. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you know, I, I, at that point, both Glenn and I said, you know, no one wants to see this movie. <laughs> well, he said he was going to email the people. He emailed the two people he knew who lived in L.A., and he figured the rest would take care of itself. Mm-hmm. That someone would just that would walk take in. a little bit more than that. I mean, you know, look, there's a... There are obviously film festivals everywhere now. They're all over the country. There's, you know, multiple film festivals in a lot of communities. And films play, get into these festivals, and, and, and filmmakers have this experience of being in a festival where a, a reasonably good festival will do some job marketing the festival, marketing the individual films, so on and so forth. So you show up at the festival, and people have bought tickets to see your movie. And you think, okay, well, that's easy. And, and they liked it. So, I, so that's all it is. All I have to do is get the film to play, and they show up. It's not, <laughs> it's not quite that simple yeah. out, out, outside of the festival world. You know, that's a learning experience. Uh, some people get it. Some people don't. Uh, from our standpoint, we 
positioned this film in a way that if a lot of people bought tickets, that would be great and it'd be fine. If not a lot of people did, we weren't going to get hurt. And like I said, again, philosophical, all we can do is provide the opportunity for the films to be seen. At that point, it's up to the filmmakers, the distributors, and to a large extent, the public about whether it gets expanded and you know, and so on and so forth. The public ultimately dictates what kind of life films have in this city. And if, if that means being an, an especially informed and attuned film goer, there is something to that. There is a whole apparatus out there that will spoon feed you about which films you should see. And whether it's the studios or the indie affiliates of the studios, they've got the dollars and they've got the knowledge and they know how to market and make these multi-million dollar, or uh, yeah, at some levels, multi-million dollar pictures seem like indie film. They're not. If they were produced independently, they're not being released independently. And this is not about the quality of those films. They're very fine films. But if that's what you think of as indie, then you're only, you're only going to be aware of films that can afford television advertising. That ultimately, that right there defines what you're going to be aware of. People in Los Angeles want to care about stuff that, that is below that radar, they're going to have to make a little more effort. Besides watching TV and being spoon-fed, how can they search out independent films? You may have to sign up for email newsletters and, and, and actually look at them. We have one that goes every week. I'm sure landmark, you know, you, you have to have that landmark calendar uh, for the new art on your refrigerator. You have to uh, have the new Beverly calendar. You know, we do one of our great hits with Swingers. And I, and I loved that on John Favreau's refrigerator, he had the calendar for the new Beverly Cinemas. Um, right. Your competition for people <laughs> don't know. That's... Our competition? Well, you know, they're not our competition because... I mean, only in the sense that, yeah, sure, there are competition. If someone only can see one movie a week and they go to the New Beverly, they're not coming to the, new, the Sunset Five. But they're not our competition because they, they do something different. They do it really well. Right. The Cinematech, uh, LACMA, Cinefamily, all these groups. Which one do you hate the most out of all of them you just mentioned? <laughs> I don't hate any of them. I mean, maybe that's my problem. <laughs> all right. So you don't like the Cinefamily? No, I, I, you know, that's not the case at all. We've had situations where films played at our theater and then moved over to the Cine family because they'll play stuff sub-run, and I've allowed distributors to have you know postcards in the theater promoting that. Uh, I'm no longer playing the film. There's no reason why I shouldn't. If someone wants to see it, I'm going to tell people where to find it. So no, I absolutely do not. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Do not hate Cine family. <laughs> all right, not a fan. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck, Rick. No problem. Take care. Bye. Bye. And go to our website, prowlersense.com, slash the number 30W, three of the week. Every Monday, go to our website. We give you three podcasts to check out for the rest of the week. We've had some great guest contributors, and we'll have more. Learn about great podcasts like Milk and Minutia. Very funny podcast, Milk and Minutia. Hard to say, hard to spell easy to listen to. Hey, we are doing a year in review show. Call or write us with the best bad movie you saw. It doesn't matter what year the movie came out, just that you saw it last year. Go to ProudlyResents.com for details. Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.